0: All right, we will return to our study of law and gospel. Right before we do, just a quick, if you don't know this, if you, maybe you care, maybe you don't care, but we have been having technical problems, live broadcasting for the Church One app and the Sermons 2.0 app. Nobody has any clue what's going on because it makes absolutely no sense, um, there's, a, there's software when you're live broadcasting for those, and it has a little green indicator. And when that green indicator turns red, it tells me that I've lost connection. And then what will happen, it will disconnect or the audio will cut out. And then it sometimes will send out another notification, start again, then send out another notification. And it just keeps reconnecting, disconnecting, reconnecting. So you would think it's the Internet. That would make perfect sense, right? Well, the Internet's not working. The only problem is at that very same time I'm live streaming on the Spreaker app, and there is literally no interruption, no disconnecting. At the same time, two televisions in the house are live or you know, streaming, you know, ultra high def television. There's no problem. So why is the only thing the problem is is for streaming on that particular platform? So it makes no sense. So we thought it was the software for that. So. I I reverted back to an older version. That didn't work. We don't know. They did release an update this morning, and I updated it. As far as I know, there was no problem here. So there's something possibly going on with our internet that's just causing problem for that software. But you know how hard it is to try to tell your internet provider, hey, it works everything but for this one thing. (laughs) They're going to say it's not the service. So I don't know what to do. Uh, so, but, so right now, we're uh, live streaming currently. Well, here, I'm live streaming on everything. But currently at home, what I'm doing is only live streaming on the Spreaker app. And just so that you know, if you have the Spreaker app on your mobile device, you'll just open it and just minimize it, kind of leave it open in the background. You will get the notifications when I go live. But if you close the Spreaker app all the way out, you will not get the notification. It's bizarre the way it works, but we're going to work on getting the other fixed. Uh, what I may start doing is sending out a notification on the Church One app. Hey, I'm going live, but I will only be on the speaker app. But when I get home, since they did an update, we'll try it today to see. And well, But I have no clue what's going on. If I did, I don't know. I've been working on it and working on it, talked to all kinds of people. Nobody has a clue. Makes absolutely no sense. So it would be better just if the Internet went completely down then it would be easy to get it fixed, right? Hey, the internet's down. That would come out. But there, I think there's some weird fluctuation happening in the service, and that's causing that one software to go, what just happened? Because when you look at the numbers, it's supposed to be, I know the numbers don't mean anything to you, but it's supposed to be around 300, 354, and that's usually where it's at. But now it'll jump to like 700 and then drop to zero and then go back to 100. Back to It's like... Like the, the signal is doing something weird, but for the other software, it's like, ah, we don't care if it's fluctuating. We can make it work. But that one software is like, nope, wild fluctuation, it disconnects. So, I don't know. That's, that's the situation. I'm hoping we'll have it fixed soon because it's driving me absolutely crazy. But we will see. We will see. All right? Now, long gospel. This is part 23, I think. Part 23. Um, I'm not going to go, last hour we just did Romans 10, we did a, uh, basically a test on what was law, what was gospel, we talked about the, how the law, uh, and in one way, is never successful uh, because, well, it always leads to disobedience, so we, we talked about that, but now we're going to go back to the book, God's No and God's Yes, we're in thesis number three, we started this on Wednesday night, thinking caps on. I wish I could review everything, but I cannot. But we'll at least just briefly mention it. All right? First, the thesis. Thesis number three. Everybody should have it in front of them. Or you can go to the Church One app and find the message, Long Gospel PDF, and it's attached right there. Thesis number three. Here we go. Rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and the highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. Remember, the book claims it's taught by the Holy Ghost. You know, I reject that because if it was taught by the Holy Ghost, then all Christians would what? Know the proper distinction between law and gospel. Okay. They do talk about it being taught in the school of experience. I do agree with that because I think the more, the longer you live as a Christian, I think the more you live your Christian life, the more you begin to understand law and gospel because you begin to realize how sinful you are and how much you fall short of the law and then you realize you have to draw a distinction or you end up very confused and it leads to all kinds of problems all right the book begins this way the thesis does not mean that the doctrine of the law and the gospel is so difficult that it cannot be learned but they say without the aid of the Holy Ghost, which again, I reject. I will say this. I don't believe the doctrine is so complicated that it cannot be learned. I believe it can be. Uh, I believe all the doctrines of Scripture can be learned, but it requires work. Um, They say it's easy enough for a child to learn. I think a child can know the difference between law and gospel, right? A child can know that law is what? Do this. And gospel is what? It's been done for you by Christ. That's, that's, everyone can get that part down. Law is telling you to do something. Gospel is telling you what Christ is doing, has done, is doing, will do. It's finished. It's complete. That kind of idea. Right? I think we can all understand that. But at the present time, we are studying the application and the use of the doctrine. All right, so let's make sure we have this. Everybody ready? All right, right. First. We have the basic, the definition of law and gospel. The definition of law and gospel is what? Law is do this, gospel is it's been done. So that's the definition. Now we need to talk about the application and the use. Application and use. What do we mean by application? What's a basic understanding of application? Application. When it comes to a doctrinal theology, remember we we how do we use, how, what, how do we apply it to a given situation? How do I take this theology and apply it to whatever situation, whatever situation you're dealing with in your life or my life? Remember, most of the time, a lot of times, Christians learn theology in a theoretical way, right? That we know the theory of it. We just sometimes don't know how that translates or applies in a practical way. give you an example. Late last night, I did a live broadcast dealing with uh, the the Sermon on the Mount. And you know how I love how the Sermon on the Mount has been so misused and taken apart. Well, we all know the famous verse, right? The famous verse in Matthew 6 that refers to the fact that, hey, God will feed you just like he feeds the birds of the air. He's going to provide for you. And everybody says, amen. Theoretically, we understand that verse, yes? That it seems to imply that God is going to provide for us. The reality is, in 2022, every four seconds on this earth, someone starves to death. Every four seconds. That's... Now, you see the problem? We've got, we've got a theoretical concept. How does that apply to that situation? Throughout church history, there's been lots of attempts to try to figure it out. We've, and I'll be talking about this today, probably this afternoon I'll do a broadcast on it. We have this crazy verse in, in Luke where he says, "No one, basically, uh, you're, you're going to die, and then in the very same verse it says, but not a hair of your head will be harmed. How can you say I'm going to die, but not a hair of my head is going to be harmed? How does that make any sense? Right? It's confusing. So, so, so sometimes there's these verses that seem to say one promise, but the reality seems to go against it. Well, same with long gospel. We've got these. What do we know about long gospel? They fundamentally differ from each other, right? So now that, that means there's a right way to apply it and a wrong way. There's a right way to use it, and there's a wrong way to use it. And as Christians, have we been guilty of the wrong way of using law? Probably anyone here who's a parent... And your use of the law, probably at times we used it incorrectly. Probably all of us. And there's probably, okay, but I was like, probably not. No, we all have, okay? And we probably all feel bad. And because sometimes you were doing the best you could with what you knew. And and you knew law, you knew gospel. And and in many cases you were taught, use law, use law, use law, thinking it was going to accomplish something that ultimately it doesn't. So, at some t- and again, that's the school of experience. The problem is you only get one... One shot with children, that's it. And then, and then they don't care how many, they expect, they judge you on the basis of what? Perfection. They don't judge you on the basis of how old you were, what was going on. And don't you hate that about when kids judge your parenting? They don't judge it on the fact that, I don't know, you're human, you're fallible, you were 23 trying to, you know, go, go to school, have a job, and try to take care of you. No, no, no. Uh, you should have been perfect but they don't like you when you judge them on the state of perfection. They they, kind of get really mad about that. Okay, but all right. I'm chasing a rabbit there. But you get the idea, okay? When you get into life, you realize, well, okay, wait. All right. Do I apply law here? Do I apply gospel here? Wait. Okay, why should I, how should I use this right now? And we all make mistakes. So there's one thing knowing it. It's another thing in Applying it and using it. Does, that, does everyone understand that struggle? Right. So I think the learning it is simple. The applying it and using it, <laughs> yeah, not so much. Not, not, not so much at all. all right. But at this present time, we're studying the application and the use of this doctrine. The practical application of the doctrine presents Difficulties which no man can surmount by reasonable reflections. You ever hear that? The application presents what? Difficulties, which no man can surmount by reasonable reflection. Now they say the Holy Spirit has to be the one to fix it, but I think the, re- the reality is that it's just sometimes we don't know what to do. And we're going to be overwhelmed by that. I will argue every, every theology... And every doctrine in Scripture presents difficulties that we cannot reasonably overcome. That's why sometimes the, the, the theology gets you so far and then some things we just have to accept by what? Faith. I don't like that. but it's the, And again, to me, that's why I love the book of Job. He had a theology of God, Right? He thought he understood. He, had, he understood God's sovereignty, yes? But when his kids are dead, he's lost everything, he's suffering, now he's facing a reality that sometimes doesn't match his theology. So then he has to listen to all his Christian friends who, you know, accuse him of sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning and Okay, their, their theology is all law, 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 and you did something wrong. They're horrible, right? So he finally gets to the end and he's like, okay all right, got to ask God some questions here. Right? And so he starts asking God questions. Because he's trying to reasonably do what? Overcome the difficulty. And remember, Job doesn't even... And, and if Job is confused, that book is the most confusing book in the history of mankind to me. Because who set the whole thing up? God. Everyone wants to blame Satan. God set the whole thing up. That, that makes no sense to me. So Job ask a million questions, and what does he get? Some more questions. So he's left with what? No answers. We have more answers reading Job than Job had. And what we know leads us to more questions. And if Job would have known what we know, I don't know how he would, how would you have felt if you would have figured that out? Wait, this whole thing was a game between you and Satan? That you, I'm the pawn in the game? I would have gotten very upset. So I say every theology, every doctrine presents difficulties that cannot be reasonably overcome. They cannot be, you have to embrace that. I cannot reasonably understand why God would create a world where every four seconds someone is dying from starvation. That blows my mind. I cannot wrap my mind around it. How every so many seconds a woman is raped. Every so many seconds this. And we can go on and on and on all the horrible things that happen. Do you understand that? I understand it theologically. Well, it's because of sin, right? We could, and we all say, The more I think about, that leads me, well, why would you create a world where there can be sin? He said, well, well, people need freedom. So you would think that freedom is wonderful, that there's suffering and pain and death and hell? I don't know how great freedom is in that particular case. It raises so many questions. So I know Christians don't like to hear that. I think every, you may want to write that down. Every doctrine in theology presents difficulties that cannot be reasonably overcome. And that's just after years and years and years of study. Years and years and years of study. Just going, I just don't understand. I don't understand. How how do we deal with the, uh, that there's more textual variance in the manuscripts than there are words? That's hard to wrap your mind around, but it's just a reality, right? I mean, there's lots of issues that we can, I can go all day on all the difficulties. So I love the fact that they say it cannot be overcome by reasonable reflection or by reasonable effort. The difficulties of mastering this art confront the minister in the first place, so as far as he is a Christian, and then the second place, and so far as he is a minister. I will say this. These difficulties confront anyone who owns a Bible and reads it. If you own a Bible and read it, you should be... The pro, the, here's the problem. The difficulties are here. Right? The church has done everything possible to keep you from the difficulty. They preach the text, and they won't be honest with the difficulty in the text. They just give you the three points of a sermon. And if the sermon is not getting you to the difficulty within the text, acknowledging it and talking about it, then you're not learning the text, you're hearing a sermon. And what have I said so many times? Sermons get far uh, in the way of the text. Like, again, when I was doing the sermon review last night, he's in Matthew 6, he just goes right past that whole thing. Hey, God doesn't want you to be hungry. God's going to take care of you. Have you ever looked at church history of Christians who, are, who starved to death, froze to death, died for all kinds of different things? How do you, was he going to deal with that difficulty? No, 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 no. Because nobody wants to deal with that difficulty in church. They want three points. They want it nice. They want everyone to be happy, and you know, and, and but that. What's the point? If, if I don't understand church that way, to me, that's. I want to deal with what's here, because most of the time, right? Sometimes it's usually. I think sometimes teenagers are better at it. The adults are just kind of like giving up, and they don't care. But sometimes younger people will like that makes absolutely no sense. Now they're not supposed to say that because the minute they say that, like, the parents are like, "Shh, you can't say that. Shh, shh, have faith." Like, no, ask the questions because I'm telling you, everyone around you, if they're honest, would be like, "What? What? I don't. It makes no sense. I, I, I've been doing that my whole life." I, I, I don't understand. I don't understand. And then every, I'm looking around at everybody else and like, nobody else has a problem? Nobody sees the, no, nobody? See, okay, all right. I guess we're good, all right. Everybody, now everybody reads, reads Genesis 1.1 and go, amen. And I'm like, I've got a problem. Genesis 1.1, it makes no sense to me because that all-knowing, all-powerful God is creating a world that I know how it turns out. I don't understand that because he had to know how it was going to turn out. Agreed? Alright. In the first place, then, the proper distinction between the law and the gospel is difficult and a high art to, to the minister, so far as he is a Christian. Indeed, the proper distinction between the law and the gospel is the highest art which a person can learn. Now, I'm going to skip the next paragraph because that was Wednesday night. We studied Psalm chapter 51. That Psalm presented some serious, serious challenges some serious challenges. I mean things that make absolutely no sense to me and I don't think we did a good job. I did get some, uh, some feedback when people agreed like, wow, I've never thought about it that way but I think you're right. I, I don't, we don't get a new heart like David prayed for and how do we understand? So I'm not going to go through all that. Please go back and listen. Uh, like I said, I've begged and begged. Try to listen to every episode in this series. Please, 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 please. The Church One app is the easiest way to find it. Just go down to series, find Understanding Law and Gospel, and they're all there in chronological order, all in one series. Just hit play and start listening to all of them. Because, like, I want to repeat everything there, but I can't. All right, so, I'm not going to mention one thing about it. Now, if you have a Bible, Gospel of Luke, we're going to be confronted with another scripture. And I don't know what's getting ready to happen, but let's find out. All right? Everybody ready? we go. Luke chapter 5. I've got two Bibles here. I'm going to go with this one. Yep. Let's go back to Luke five one because I want context. They just jump right in the middle of it. I don't want to do that. I understand why they're doing it because they're doing it in a lecture format and you're just trying to make one point. I want us to at least see what's going on here. Everyone probably is very familiar with this story. All right, here we go. Luke chapter five, verse one. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood at the lake of Gennesaret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. Right? Uh, And, He entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and he prayed him that he would thrust out a little little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? There's lots of people. He gets out on the boat a little ways so that he can then speak to the people. Now, if you go back into church history and read the church father's, Everything. The ship represents one thing, the water represents something else. And, and it just turns crazy. We won't go into all of that right now. Okay? So he everyone sees that. He entered into one of the ships. He thrust out. He speaks to the people. When he had left speaking, in other words, when he finished his teaching, what does he say? He said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a draught. And Simon, answering, said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at that word, I will let down the net. All right? That you can kind of, I think you can feel maybe, we've been doing this all night, really? We, okay, all right, whatever you say, whatever you say. And when they, had, when they had this done, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes and their nets break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were on, which were in the other ship, and they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. All right, now. Before we read what they are going to do with this, there's the question: What led to Peter's conviction and confession? What led to Peter's confession and conviction here? Yeah, yeah we just read the story. What, what leads to it? What, what OK, the miracle or the provision, right? Which is interesting, it wasn't necessarily a law, it was more of what God did. What God did led to the conviction and the confession. Just, I'm not saying that's the direction they're going to go, I just found it interesting, because sometimes we would say, well, what should, what should do it should be a law. He, he obeyed the law, did he not? Now maybe he didn't obey the law because God told him what to do, but maybe he didn't obey it with the right attitude in the heart, and then when he see what God did for him, then maybe he was convicted by his attitude. So, what do you think led to his conviction? Do you think it was because Peter was aware of how bad his attitude was, or do you think he's just convicted because of what God ha- has done? There, there's a lot of ways of looking at that. We, we could probably let's see which what they're going to do here because we could talk all day here. It says in Luke 5.8, the Lord comes to the disciple whom He had named Petros a rock man, and bird, and bids him and his fellow fishermen after an unsuccessful night on the lake to drop their nets in deep water. Peter complied, most likely expecting, however, that he would catch nothing. I, do you think there's a little truth to that? That Peter was like, all right, we'll, we'll do this. But, I, but he really didn't believe that they were going to catch anything. Do you think Peter doubted I think that there is probably like, come on. All right, well, we'll do this anyway. Okay, all right. I, I think there is a little. I think there is a little truth to that. All right, but lo, they caught such a multitude of fishes that their nets broke. Now, Peter, they says, seized with fear. He reflects. They think he's reflecting on something. That must, that must be the almighty God himself who has spoken to me. That must be my maker. He will one day be my judge. He falls down at Jesus' knees and says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He expects the Lord to say to him, Look at the multitude of sins you have committed. You are worthy of everlasting death and damnation. So they believe that what happened is once he saw the miracle, Peter realized that he was speaking to God and then realized, oh no. One, I, 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 I think that it may be reasonable to, to conclude that what Peter, if, if Peter realized Jesus was God by the miracle, then Peter was very much aware of his attitude about doing it. Do, do, do I think that's true? Or what What do you think? So see, see why I asked the question? What motivated Peter to confess? What motivated Peter to get upset here? What do you think motivated it? They think the reason is he realized, oh, wow, I'm in the boat with God, and I just had a really like, <laughs> you don't even know what you're talking about. Okay, I'll just do this. And now he realized, Whoa! I, I just did that to the to God. Now, see, you see one of the limitations of studying the Bible. What's the problem sometimes with studying the Bible? We're not given the insight there, right? So we can all start speculating. And I guarantee, if we went around the room, all of you have your own thoughts or opinions here. But here's what we do know: Jesus told him to do something. He complied, but it. We do know he did so reluctantly. Would we say he did so reluctantly? Well, looking back at the text, what would you say indicated that he was somewhat reluctant to do it? Hey, we've already been doing this all night. Right? I mean, I bet you you've told your teenager to do something like, I've been doing that all day. Okay, do it, do it. Well, they usually don't say nevertheless at your word, I'll do it. They think that that should be good enough grounds to get out of it. But we all know that attitude. We've all had that attitude, right? Even at work when your boss tells you, I've only been doing that for 15 hours. You want me to do it again? Okay, I I would never say that at work. Okay, but, okay, but, right? I mean, come on. We've all done that? So I think we can agree that there's, there's, an ad, there's a reluctancy inside of him. Agreed? Jesus performs the miracle, and Peter seems immediately like, is it fear? How do you read it? How do you read it? Read, read the, the very first words that describe his reaction. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Lord. Now it says, "For he was astonished that they, that uh, and all that were with him at the draught of the fishes, fishes which they had taken." But look, what is what is the first words Jesus say says to him? Fear not. Is that not interesting? Fear not. Does everybody see that? Am I reading that correctly? And so, and look at verse 10. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto, He says unto Simon, who, there's other people with him, but he speaks directly to Simon. Who's the one who confessed his sin? Simon, and he says, Fear not. Which seems to indicate that his confession was motivated by what? Maybe it was by fear. If it was by fear, what would be the fear? I just had a horrible attitude towards the creator of the universe. I just had an attitude with God. Possibly? Are are you maybe a little bit more convinced now? Okay, maybe, maybe not. All right. Let's see what they, they say here. They clearly believe it was because of fear, right? They said, Peter is seized with fear. He reflects that this must be the Almighty God himself who has spoken to me. That must be my maker. He will one day be my judge. He falls down at Jesus' knees and says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. He expects the Lord to say to him, look at the multitude of your sins you've committed. You're worthy of everlasting death and damnation. Where then did Peter's fright come from? Why did he not thank Jesus when he fell down at his knees? You'd think that maybe his reaction would be, thank you. But it's not thank you. Is that kind of odd to you? Wait, we've been working all night, and he just gave us enough fish that may support us for the next month. But he doesn't say thank you. He confesses. That's an interesting question. What do you think the answer is? Why did he not thank Jesus when he fell down at his feet? This is their answer. Because his many sins passed before his mind's eye. And that condition, and that condition, it was impossible for him to express cheerful gratitude. But he had to drop trembling to his knees and cry to his Lord and Savior, these awful words, depart from me, O Lord. The devil, and they say, the devil had robbed him of all comfort and whispered to him that he must speak thus to Jesus. He expected nothing else than to be slain by the Lord. He was incapable of distinguishing law and gospel. If he had been able to do this, he could have approached Jesus cheerfully, remembering that he had forgiven all his sins. Their argument here is that Peter was obliterating the distinguishing distinguishing between law and gospel because he's already been called by Jesus. And if he's already been called by Jesus, then they were saying he should already know his sins have been forgiven. But he doesn't see the forgiveness of his sins. He sees the reality of his sin. Instead of thanking God for what he has been given, he can only see the guilt of his sin. Well, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. Right. Right. We know. We see. We, we can we agree that he obviously had some kind of fear. Right. Now that that this, that passage they wanted us to read is, is in Luke what. That's in Luke 5, right? Okay. Now, if we're reading Luke, because because Bobby makes a very good point here, if if we just go with Luke, has Peter been called before this point? If we just go with Luke. Go back to Luke chapter 1. Let's just just play along here. All right. Luke chapter 1. I think we can agree that in Luke one, uh, Peter is not called by Jesus. Well, can we agree with that? Okay, because all of Luke one is going to be dealing. It's going to be dealing with the angel foretells Jesus' birth. It's going to talk about Elizabeth, Mary, John the Baptist. Everybody see all of that? Chapter two. What do we have in chapter two? Jesus' birth. Yes, his name, naming, and presentation in the temple. Correct. Simeon beholds God's salvation. Anna gives thanks. Jesus uh, gives thanks. Jesus converses with his teachers because what happens? His parents lose him, remember? They leave him at the temple. Then John chapter, or John chapter 3, Luke chapter 3. John the Baptist, he addresses the multitude. What happens in 321? Uh, baptism in 321, correct? Genealogy starts in what? Verse 23? Chapter four is what? Temptation, right? Everybody see that? Chapter four, or chapter four is starting at verse fourteen. Jesus starts preaching. Yes, okay. Uh, he preaches all the way through four, correct? Uh, all the way down to verse thirty, because they try to kill him, don't they? In verse twenty-nine, don't they try to kill him? Chapter four, verse thirty-one. there's an unclean devil right there, and then there's a healing ministry in 438 through 44, if I remember correctly, right? Okay. Then in chapter 5, boom, then Peter. So, there's a lot of ways of looking at this, right? Because they want to use it as uh, as someone not properly distinguishing between law and gospel. So, let's go through this. If, now, let's see, say this is correct, right? So let's make sure we go with this. Jesus tells Peter to do something, right? Peter clearly seems to have a reluctant attitude to do it. Yes? But he goes on with it. Maybe he goes along with it because at this point, Jesus may have a little bit of fame and popularity. And how would we know this? Well, just in chapter 5, doesn't it say there's like a multitude there that's so great? So Peter knows he's. this uh, this guy is popular, well-respected. There's all these people listening to him. He is in my boat, right? So, oh man, now he wants to go fishing. I've been doing this all night, all right? So I'm going to be nice, but inwardly I'm not so nice. I'm like, this guy, I don't know what he's thinking, right? He goes out, he does exactly what Jesus says, and then he's confronted with the fact that maybe Jesus is more than just a good teacher. Maybe he is God. And then he is convicted. If that is the case, and this is like the initial, we can almost refer to this as the initial conversion of Peter. Now, we would have to put a harmony of the Gospels to see if this works, but I'm just going with this for argument's sake. Then, would this be a correct use? Would, would this not be Peter confusing law and Gospel? This would be Peter responding correctly, right? He was given a command. He had a bad attitude about the command. He sees that this is actually God, and when confronted with the presence of God, he is overcome with fear. And therefore, he confesses his sin, and then Jesus says, fear not. Meaning, I'm gonna take, I, I, I'll take, I, don't worry about the sin, I'll take care of the sin situation. Would that be a, a, a obliteration of long gospel? I think this would be a right application and use. Correct? Jesus doesn't need to give him any more law because Peter's already what? Convicted. So what did he need? Gospel, which is fear not. You don't need to fear. Does that make sense? They want to use it as kind of an illustration of us missing the gospel Benefits like all the fish because we are so blinded by our sin. I do appreciate trying to do that, I just don't know if the text leads to that. Remember, I don't care what book, I don't care how much we agree with the theology of a book. What do we always have to care first and foremost about? How is the scripture being utilized? Right? How is the scripture being utilized? If we go to, um, Go to Matthew really quick. Go to Matthew really quick. This, this, just may, this may be the only thing that may present the problem. If you look at Matthew 4, how was Peter called to follow Jesus in Matthew 4? Start in verse. You can you can skim verse twelve to twenty-two. That's where you'll find your answer. How is he called there? Jesus just says, "Hey, follow me, and I will make you fisher of men." Verse twenty, they straightway left their nets and followed him. All right, you see that? All right. So that's a different account than what we see here in Luke 5. Right? Would we agree? So we have to try to find a, some way to harmonize this. Now, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but some we could speculate. So did Peter get a call? Now listen, did Jesus tell him, follow me? He left his nets, left his ship, but in Luke 5 we find him where? Yeah. Whip back to his ship. Or do we say Luke 5 was the first one, right? He doesn't leave his nets until what happens in Matthew 4. See where the harmony of the gospel can become really problematic in how we put these together? Because how we put this together is majorly... This tells a whole story, right? Imagine the scene... Imagine the scene. Now, I'm not saying this works, but just go with me, all right? You you can struggle, we can struggle to figure this out, but the book wants us to use this text to try to prove a point. What can we This is very important. What can we never do with the Bible? Manipulate the text to make a point. The point should always arise from the text. So I, I love what they're trying to do because I could preach what they're trying to do. You know how many times we miss the, the gifts of the gospel because all we can see is our own sin and we're so self-loathing over our own sin that we can't even see what God has done for us. That is wrong. We need to see our sin in light of what Christ has done and rejoice and be thankful. I could preach that all day. And, I, and 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 I could have manipulated the text to preach it that way. And there's a high probability you would not even have given it a second thought. You would have. I could have. I could have turned it into a sermon. I could have had three points. You would have been like, "That sounded good. Oh, praise God!" Instead of seeing my sin, I need to see the benefits of the gospel. And you may have even said, "Good sermon." And when I was a young preacher, I probably would have done it that way. But after a while, you've got to realize, I, I'm not here to produce sermons. I'm here to make us see the text. So what we have to do is, I don't care what they do with the text. We've got to figure out what should we do with the text. Because no matter what we do with the text, law and gospel is present here. But remember, they said it's the most difficult thing to do. He just demonstrated how difficult it is to do, because I think he just completely obliterated the text. So let's go with two theories. Are you ready? Everybody ready? Let's go with theory number one. All right. One day, Jesus is out walking. He sees Peter and says, follow me. And Peter's like, drop the net. Starts following him. Somewhere in the following process, Peter's like, I'm going back fishing. He goes back to the boat. He's sitting there in his boat one day. Here comes Jesus again. There's all these people. He's like, hey, I, I, your boat goes out in the boat. Hey, let's go fishing. And Peter's like, oh, I've already been doing this. right?" Now, he may already have a little bit of attitude because he's out, he kind of was following him at one time and went, went back. So maybe there's already maybe a little bit of guilt or a little bit of uncomfortableness, right? And then Jesus does this amazing Miracle, would that then not bring lots of conviction to Peter? Wait a minute. So the one who told me to follow him was actually God. And here I am back on my boat. That would bring some serious conviction and fear. Yes? That would be theory number one. What would be theory number two? Theory number two would be that Luke is the first time, right, that Peter ever encounters Jesus right? He sees all of this. Boom. He sees all of this. He is still convicted because he had a bad attitude. And then later on, Jesus sees him and says, get rid of your, you know, follow me. So, which, 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 which do you go with? Which do you go with? Everybody thinks two is the correct way? How, how many have in the back of their Bibles a harmony of the Gospels? Just look and see if you have one. All right? We may, we're not even going to get as far as, we're, we're just going to end up having fun here trying to figure this out. All right? I'm going to look here. I'm going to look here. And Twyla, if you're in the back sending messages on the chat thing, I'll look here quickly. Or you can just send your children with messages telling us the. The right answer. You can tell us the right answer here in a minute. All right. The passage we're looking at is Luke 5 what? Where uh, Peter, Jesus enters his boat. It's Luke 5. Hang on. Uh, We'll go verse 3. Luke 5, 3. Hang on. All right. I'm going to see here. Does anybody even bother to figure out when this supposedly happens? All right? Now, one commentary says in Luke 5.3, even then, even at this point in Luke 5, Peter is almost given a point of privilege because it's his boat that Jesus chooses. Almost establishing they may already have known each other or had some kind of relationship. And, and chapter 4. So, seemingly like they already knew each other. Oh, okay, say that again. Are the same event, just with different details. Okay. So if we so I was going to get to theory number three in a minute, but okay. But that just that gives us theory number three. Theory number three is that Luke five, all of this is the same event, just you got to add all the details together to get the full thing. All right. That that at least makes it a little if we go with that theory, then that kind of so everybody understand theory one. Peter was called, but he ends up going back fishing. And then Jesus comes to his boat, and then boom. He's obviously very, very convicted. Theory two has the boat happening, but then later on you go back to Matthew and then he sees Peter and is like, hey, follow me, and then Peter finally gets rid of the boat. Or theory three, both of them are the exact same event. Just different details. You've got three, th- three theories. If we go with theory three, do what? Okay. All right. Well, you got different accounts for different purposes, right? All the all the different things we can say about it. So let's go with that theory. Now, the I guarantee, if I get into the commentaries, it's probably going to get ugly and messy and who knows what. All right, but let's go with theory number three. We'll just go with this one because at least this one's a little easier to work around. Then this is the then this basically is well. Obviously, Jesus had some dealings with Simon prior too, because we see him in chapter four at his house. Right? Is, is that correct? Everybody see that? Let's see if we all are in agreement. Yeah. We believe that it is, I believe. Everybody see it? Yes, no? What verse? Let's see, if, do we agree or disagree? 38, right? What does it say? rose into Simon's house. Okay, and who does he heal? His mother-in-law, right? And so the, and the reason why this is so important is this is always used to prove that Peter was married, which then people use to argue against the Catholic Church not allowed. So you see, you see why this is so important? All right, so let's go with this theory, all right? Does this change how you read the text at all? This is really, in a sense, the first... So this way we would have to almost see this as what? Peter's initial salvation, agreed, would you, would everyone agree that this really is recording Peter's initial salvation? Luke five, because all, I mean, if we believe Matthew four and all of that's the same event, this is literally Peter's salvation. And if it's Peter's salvation, then it's not that he's like he's missing un, misunderstanding law and gospel. What is he realizing? He he has realized that he's in the presence of God. He's very much convicted by his own. Attitude and sin. And he confesses. Is that a a, a misinterpretation of long gospel? This would be a right understanding of long gospel. Everything is done perfectly right. Yes? Jesus gives a command. There seems to be a reluctant obedience to it, but it's clearly not exact, internal, there, there's something wrong with it. Peter obviously knows all of his other sins, right? But it, but he, he doesn't have a problem yet. Why does he not have a problem yet? Because he doesn't quite understand who Jesus is. Jesus does the miracle, boom, obviously by a sovereign work of God. His eyes are open, his mind is changed. Remember, that's what repentance is. His mind is changed and all of a no, this is not just a famous teacher, this is God, and if he's God and he's in my boat, I'm in trouble because I don't deserve to be in the presence of God and confesses it. I don't believe this is an obliteration of law and gospel. I, I think that this is a complete correct example of it. Whenever we see God, remember, you, we, Calvin wrote it. I've said it a million times. What, what am I getting ready to say? When we see God as He truly is, we see ourselves as we truly are. When we see God as He truly is, then we see ourselves as we truly are. That's the, that's the reality of it. The more we learn of God, what, do we, what should be the reality? This is, this is how you know you're learning more about God. The more you learn about God, the more of your sin You become aware of. If the more you learn, the more prideful you become, the more arrogant you become, the more condemning you become, then you're not learning about God. You're learning concepts and ideas. And that's that's one of the greatest dangers in Bible college. Meet, Meet anyone who's in Bible college and they're at the end of their first or second year, they're horrible to be around. They think they know everything and they condemn everyone. Not in every case, but it's a general practice. Because they're human beings, right? Yes? What should happen the more we learn about God, the more we should see how messed up we are. which should then break us, humble us, and what should we be saying? Depart from me. I'm, what, what is Peter's exact words? Everybody look at them. You may want to circle them. For I'm a sinful man. Now, here's the thing. What do we do when we find ourselves in that state? We don't sit there and just continue to beat ourselves up. We know that our only hope is in Christ. And so God says to him, or Jesus says to him, God, fear not. How, the only, where is the only place we can find no fear because of our sin? In Christ. In Christ. That is the correct way to understand this story. I don't believe that that Peter is, they accuse Peter of misconfusing law and gospel. So they want us to read the story as, hey, Peter, your sins have already been forgiven. So why are you getting upset about this? No, 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 Peter's sins haven't been forgiven at this point. I think this is the initial salvation. I don't, I mean, do y'all you, you, you like that or do you disagree with it? I like how Dianne is saying verse 8 is his conversion. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. That is conversion, is when you say, Lord, I am a sinner. That is conversion. Conversion takes place when you realize you're a sinner. And then he says, fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And then they, they, had, they had brought, uh, and when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Yeah, that's his conversion. I don't believe that's a, uh, I don't believe that's a correct, I, I, believe, I don't believe that the book is correct and saying Peter is guilty here of messing up long gospel. I believe this is a correct illustration of how it works. When I, when I look to God, what do I see? His holy standard, right? And what does that holy standard sh- show me? My unholy, stan- my unholy existence, right? And then what is my only hope? To confess and to acknowledge my sin. I think that this is a perfect example of law and gospel. All right? I'm going to have to stop there. right. So let's go through some basic lessons we learned. All right. I cannot stress this enough. Cannot stress this enough. You, I I hope you, I've been trying to teach this a lot over 2022 and probably even before. I've probably been doing it in some ways my whole Christian life. But let me just stress this. You cannot allow a Christian book or a sermon to distract you or keep you from the text. You know how most preachers would have handled this? They would have looked at that paragraph. They would have looked at that paragraph and like, oh, this is a good sermon. This is a good sermon. How many times do we miss God's provision, God's grace, and God's mercy because we can't see ourselves in light of his mercy. We see ourselves in light of our sin. Oh, that would preach, right? I probably can get three points. I could probably write out three points. Just give me about two minutes with a pencil. Uh, I could probably do it right here in front of you. All right, now what do I need? Okay, I need a good intro. I just need a good introduction, right? Then we work through the text, right? Not, not that we're actually going to care about the text because I'm using the text. Then I give us the idea and then I tell some story, either from my own life or someone else's life, about missing out the gospel because of self-guilt, self-doubt, and self-loathing, which there's a good chance that anyone who's grown up in church feels a lot of doubt and guilt For your own mistakes, yes? That should get your attention, make it emotional, and if I do an altar call, I can probably get 90% of the church to come forward. Everyone then walks out thinking, wow, that was a good church service, Pastor. That was amazing. Thank you so much for helping me because I struggle with guilt and I struggle with doubt and I struggle with fear, and you've eliminated that by doing what? By destroying the text. I think most preaching is designed to give you a sermon, not to give you the text. The text is simply a device to get points so they can give you a sermon. Because I think in many cases when you deal with the text, it doesn't always fit nice and neat, right? What did we have to do there with that text? What were some things we had to figure out? Now, most preachers wouldn't have done it the way I did because I try to make you do part of the work, but what, what did we have to figure out with that text? We had to figure out the timing of it, right? Right? We had to figure out the timing. Once we figured out the timing, that would obliterate some of the sermons, right? That obliterated some of the sermons, right? Because now we realize, oh wait, this is Peter's initial conversion. So preaching the sermon the way others would preach it would not be an accurate representation of the text. Once we get the actual meaning of the text, then what do we learn from it? Well, then we learn a beautiful picture of when we see God as He is. Then we see ourselves as we truly are, and that brings about conversion. There's still a sermon there, but it has to be in accordance with the text. I think too many times we're so worried about sermons that we're not worried about the text. And this book fell right into the trap. What does he want to show us? The wrong application of law and gospel, and he thought he found it right there, but he didn't find it right there. He should have been using it as an example of the distinction. So I'm saying when you hear a sermon, you say, you have to, this is the question you have to ask. When you leave a sermon, do I, did I truly understand the text as it is written? Does that make sense? Did I understand the text? Not how good the three points were, not how sad the story was at the end, not how funny the opening joke was. Not how he made perfect eye contact and he had good inflection in his voice and it was wonderful and he was a great speaker and it was, everything was wonderful. No, do you understand the text? I, so many times, when I, especially when I was in the military and I worked with lots of people who went to church, I loved on Mondays, they'd come in on Mondays. I'd say, so how was church? And they would tell me, oh, it was amazing. God was moving. It was great. I felt the Spirit. And they would tell me how wonderful it was. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. All right, so what was the text? They'd give me the text. I'm like, okay, tell me about the sermon. In many cases, they couldn't remember, okay, which, yeah, don't even get me started on, you know, the, the, the meaninglessness of preaching sometimes. But sometimes they would remember what? The points. And that'd be great. So then, not all the time, but most of the time, if they, they would mention the text, most of the time I would know at least enough about it. Sometimes I'd have to go look real quick, but most of the time I would know the text and then I would just start asking questions about the text. Well, what about this? Or what about this? Or what about that? Or what, 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 what do you think about that? And guess what in many cases they could not do? They couldn't tell me anything about the text. All they could do was repeat the points. That's what I'm talking about. What should you be able to say? Boom. Here's the text. Here's who it was written to. Here's why it was written. Here's what was going on. Here's what the text means. Here's what the text doesn't mean. If you can't explain the text, then all you got was a sermon. And if all you got was a sermon and not the text, then something was wrong. And you know what a lot of people want? They want a sermon. What's been the number one criticism of this church forever? It's too academic. It feels like seminary. It feels like a universe. I want it to feel... And and so they, they always try to look for a word, right? And so sometimes, guess what I'll be told? We just don't get enough gospel. I'll be like, we just spent six months studying the doctrine of justification. What are you talking about we didn't get gospel? We've been in Romans for 15 years. We've, we've been talking about the gospel 500 different ways, right? So what do you mean it's not gospel enough? What do they want? They want it to feel like what? The right kind of mood. The right kind of feeling. The right kind... They're, they're, they're not... What do they not want? They would never say this. They don't want the text. But if you're dealing with the text, is it always nice and neat? No, you know, sometimes... It's not three points sometimes. and Sometimes I'm like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about... Now, I understand I could eliminate getting you involved. I could do that and I could do it for you. But to me, that's... Look, if you're not going to remember anything, I'm going to make sure you don't remember some of the work you did. So then... Because then I don't have to... Like, I'm like, hey, I don't even remember what they did. So what, what do I expect? Okay? So then then I'm like, you wasted your own time. All right? Do you see... Does everybody understand what I mean? How the sermon can get in the way of the text. You have to know the text. So hopefully, when you leave here today, what can you say about Luke five? That it records Peter's conversion. There we go, and it, we it, and we. It records God's assurance. Right. It, it records God's holiness, Peter's conviction, and then His assurance to fear not. Right. I mean, that's awesome. Yeah. Right there. So, you, so now you know a little bit more about... Now, I, now, the goal was really to talk about law and gospel. But what can I never let get in the way of the text? The agenda. I wanted to talk about law and gospel. We still did, but it became obvious what did we need to work on. The text, because the book was misusing the text. Does that make sense? They, they, they were trying to make it sound like,, "Hey, Peter, man, Peter's messing up long gospel here. I don't know I don't think Peter's messing up long gospel here. I think it's a beautiful picture of it working correctly. So don't let a sermon ever get in the way of the text. Don't ever let a sermon get. In the, way. the sermon may be great from a human speaking perspective. You may even find the points convicting. The points may even be true. But true points. That are not, that does not come from the text, that's a problem because now you're getting a true point, but it's misrepresenting what the text is saying. right? The, the, the quality of the point has to be that it directly comes from the text. Not just what it used those words. Now what is the text actually saying? Remember what we always talk about? Matthew 24? Everybody goes to Matthew 24 and says, "Oh, look. There's going to be earthquakes, and going to be storms. That's the proof of the end times. And then they completely obliterate the fact that Matthew 24 is primarily about what? 70 AD. How in the world do you miss that? When Jesus literally, when they literally asked for signs, did they ask for the signs? They asked for the signs for when that temple was going to be destroyed. How does preachers miss that? Because people get caught up, ooh, signs of the times. I'm going to write all of these down, not even realizing what they're doing. Because preachers keep you away from the actual text. He, I can't even get started on Hebrews, where people turn it into about, can you lose your salvation? Can you lose it? Can you lose it? Hebrews is about, hey, to the Jews, your system of salvation is about to be obliterated because 70 AD is about to occur. You need Jesus. It, it's not about soteriology as much as it about the replacement of Judaism with Christianity. But again, people don't interpret that. Why? Because we want sermons. And this turned into an example of that and wasn't the goal. The goal was law and gospel. But it became obvious that what, I, what did I need to do? Stop. Stop. And look at the text. And we did the same thing with Psalm 51 on Wednesday. What did we do? We went to Psalm 51. He had an agenda. Now, I, I think what he said about it was correct, but what did we need to do? We went and worked through the text. Guess what the next paragraph is? First John chapter 3. So guess what? We're going to have to work through another text. If it agrees with the book, great. If it disagrees with the book, what will we go with? The text. All right, I hope... I hope that makes sense. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come for you this afternoon. Thank you for just being for us having a place where we can actually care about the text. Forgive us when times we have wanted sermons instead of the text. Forgive me for times of preaching a sermon instead of preaching the text. And help us be students of the text and we learn from it. And help us see the beautiful story of Peter's conversion as a proper understanding of law and gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said.